In our last study of the Mosaic Covenant, we talked about the um, relationship of the law and the promise as described by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. And we saw that in verses 15 to 18 of that chapter, the Apostle tells us what the law does not do in relation to the promise. He says very emphatically that the law does not annul or change the promise of God. The promise that God made to Abraham remains the same. And therefore, the uh, fulfillment of that promise is fulfilled by faith. It's not by the works of the law. That's the main point of the epistle, and that's the main point in those uh, verses as well. The inheritance of the promise, also for the Gentiles, but for the Jews in the Old Testament also, was not by the works of the law. It was always by the hearing of faith. And in verses 19 and following, the verses we're going to be looking at now, the apostle uh, describes then what the purpose of the law actually was. It was not intended to change or annul the promise, but what did God intend then by the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? What was its purpose? And the apostle gives to us, I think, four statements here in Galatians 3, verses 19 and following, which describe then the function of the law. The first statement that he makes is a statement that you find in verse 19. He says there in verse 19, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. There's the the first statement he makes about the purpose of the law. It was added because of transgressions. It was a temporary addition till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. But its purpose during that time was because of transgressions. Now, there are different interpretations of what the Apostle means by that it was added because of transgressions. And I'm not going to go into all those different interpretations. I think that the best interpretation, however, is this, that God gave the law to make sin exceedingly sinful, or that God gave the law to expose sin. We find this use of the law described by the Apostle Paul also in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, for example, where he says about himself, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And Paul says uh, uh, that he was alive without the law because He's uh, talking about the time when he was a Pharisee, when he was all preoccupied with the law, of course, and made it the goal and the business of his life to be in conformity to the law. And he says about that time, I was without the law because he didn't really understand the law. He didn't understand the heart of the law. He didn't understand the meaning and the purpose of the law. And he thought that he could by himself keep the law. And he says, because I thought that way about the law, and because that's the way I used the law, I was alive. In my own mind, I was, uh, I was alive. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. That is, when I really began to understand the law, after my conversion, then 
Sin revived and I died. The law exposed my sin. And he says something similar in verse 13. Has then what is good become sin, death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. I think that's the point that he's making here. It was added because of transgression. God gave the law in order to uh, expose sin. Now, the law had uh, existed, of course, from the very beginning of the world. Adam and Eve lived under law in, in the Garden of Eden, the commandment not to eat of the tree. Adam had the commandment to um, cleave to his wife and to uh, take care of the garden and so on. There, the commandment existed from the beginning. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were bound to keep the commandments of the Lord, as well as Noah and all the other patriarchs who lived before this time. But what we have here at the time of Israel is something I think that's very important. That is this, that God is coming to dwell among them. He's coming to fulfill his promise to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children. He's setting up his house among them, and he's going to live in that house, and he is a holy God. And the people have to understand then that they're not able to live with that holy God, that their sins prevent them from entering into that house. Remember, God was hidden behind the veil of the most holy place. The people could not draw near to him by penetrating behind that veil and coming into the very presence of God. And that was because of their sins. Well, the law is teaching the people then the holiness of God and their own unholiness so that they know that there's no way they can come into the presence of God as they are by themselves. The law uh, was added because of transgressions then to show the people that there was no way by the works of the law that they could come into the presence of God. The law was added because of transgression. So that's the first thing that the Apostle says about the purpose of the law. Then in verse 22, he adds another statement. He says there in verse 22, this, but the scripture, and I think we can say that he means the law, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture has confined all under sin. And the idea of that is that the scripture has imprisoned all in sin, or the law has imprisoned all in sin. It has uh, so exposed sin that it has... Um, made people very much aware that they are in the bondage of sin and in the bondage of death. The law stops every mouth and makes all the world guilty before God. And Paul then talks about bondage again in several other places in this letter. For example, in Galatians 4 verse 3, he says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. 
And in chapter 4, verse 24, uh, these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. And then also in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So the law imprisons. The law exposes uh, the, uh, sin, makes people know their sin, makes people know that they are guilty before God, makes people know that they are subject to the curse of the law, and therefore are to be uh, are under the sentence of death. And the law doesn't do anything to change that. The law itself provides no way of escape from its own curse and from that sentence of death. The law itself does not provide a way for them then to live, to be holy, to receive justification or salvation or eternal life or the Spirit. The law cannot perform that function. It exposes sin and it simply confines people in sin. And this was true not just of the Ten Commandments themselves, but this was true even of the ceremonies of the law. As the epistle to the Hebrews says in chapter 10, the first part of that chapter, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And this was true of all the ceremonies. The cleansings could not cleanse from sin. The blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin. None of the ceremonies of the law could actually do the things that they prefigured. They could only show the people in pictures about those things and point them to the promise of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very important. Those ceremonies of the law, you see, did not themselves redeem the people from the bondage of the law, but the ceremonies of the law pointed the people of God to the promise of God, to the promise of Christ. And, uh, then therefore exhorted them really to put their faith in that promise of God. So the law confined men under sin and provided no way of escape from that bondage under sin. And now really this principle of the law remains the same today. We talk about the first function of the law being that uh, it exposes sin. It teaches us to know our sin. Our Heidelberg Catechism says in one of the very first questions and answers, from where do you know your sin? And the answer is, from the law of God. That's the first use of the law. The law exposes sin, even for us today. We don't have all those ceremonies and so on, but the law has that function for us. And the law cannot redeem from that curse, from its own curse, from its bondage. It provides no way of escape. It condemns sin. It curses. It exposes men to the judgment of God, but it does not provide a way of escape. The third statement, then, that the apostle makes here in Galatians chapter 3 is found in verse 23. He says there in verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward 
be revealed. And here, the apostle really strengthens the figure he used in verse 22. In verse 22, he used the figure of being in prison, and now he says, and there's a guard set on the prison too. And the law is the prison, the law is also the guard. So the law then built a barrier around that prison that it was for the people of God, and that guard kept them from escaping from the confines of the law, kept them from escaping from the curse of the law. That law was constantly on guard against them ever thinking that they could be justified by works. The purpose of the law then was not to teach the people a way of justification by works, but the purpose of the law was to teach them that by the law there could be no justification, there could be no salvation, there could be no entering into the presence of God. The law was its own uh, instrument for preventing escape from its curse. It confined under sin and it set a guard on the prison so that they would not escape from its own strictures. And the point of this then, this purpose of the law, was to keep them uh, from using the law so that they would set their hope on Christ. As the Apostle says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, that is, to whom the promise was made and to whom the promise was fulfilled, our Lord Jesus Christ. When that seed comes, then there is no need any longer for that that law in that Old Testament sense any longer. And in verse 22, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So again, the purpose of the law was to confine under sin so that everyone would be very clear that the promise is by faith in Jesus Christ. And again in verse 23, before faith came, We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So the law guarded the people of God in the Old Testament from ever thinking that there could be any escape from its curse except by way of the promise, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ceremonies of the law then pointed them to that promise. And so the apostle says then in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? And the answer is certainly not. It doesn't work against the promises. It really works for the promises in the sense that it keeps people from hoping in anything besides the promises. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And notice there again that in verse 21, the apostles saying you can't mix law and promise. You can't say that justification is both by uh, faith and by law, or by promise and by law. 
It's either by law or by promise. And the law, it's not by law. If there could have, if it could have been by the law, it would have been by the law. There would have been no need for the promise then. But the law could not give life. And because it could not give life, we have to hope in the promise and only in the promise. The fourth statement then that the apostle makes here is in verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, what the apostle is saying here is, I think, a twofold point. It was a tutor to bring to Christ in this way, that it taught the people the knowledge of sin, it confined under sin, it kept a guard over them so that they could not escape from the curse of the law by the law itself, or even think that way. And uh, therefore, it made them pin their hopes on the promise of Christ. And the second thing the law did, of course, was to display Christ to them in the ceremonies so that they would look at those ceremonies of the law and they would say, there, in those ceremonies, I see the promise of God. I see the way of escape from the curse of the law. So it pointed them to Christ as the fulfillment of the law. It was their tutor to bring them to him. So the law does not work against the promises. It does not replace the promises. It does not annul the promises. It does not make the promises conditional on obedience to the law. Because if the law could have given life, righteousness would have been by it. If there could have been any way of escape from the curse of the law by the law, then that would have been the way. But there could not be. Their only way of escape is by the promise, which was to the seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the apostle uh, talks about this being a tutor, the law being a tutor, uh, further in the first verses of Galatians chapter 4, and I want to look there as well. He says in the first five verses of that chapter, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the apostle uses a figure of speech here. He's talking here about the heir of a household which is large and wealthy. This uh, uh, heir, however, is in his childhood, and his father is still living. And so he has not yet received his inheritance. And during his childhood, this heir then, the apostle says, does not really differ much from a slave. He's the master of all by the promise of his inheritance. But 
he's placed under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. That is, he's, he's put under the tutelage of slaves, of, of guardians and stewards and, and pedagogues and tutors and so on. And these guardians have the, the power, not only the responsibility, not only to teach him, but the power to punish him, the power to restrain his desires and to prevent him from doing what he wants, to keep his behavior within the bounds dictated by the father, and, and so on. The, the child is treated very much like a slave during the time of his childhood. And the point of all this uh, tutelage of these guardians and stewards and so on, and this protection and teaching of the guardians and steward is to prepare him for the receiving of the inheritance. And Paul says that was the function of the law for the people of God in the Old Testament. We were children back then, he says, little children. And because we were little children, we needed the tutelage of the law. We needed the bondage of the elements of the world. We needed these masters over us. This one master, really, the master of the law, over us to train us for our maturity, to train us for the time when we would receive our inheritance. And therefore, when the fullness of the time had come, that is, when God came to the time for the fulfillment of his promises. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice that he was born under the law, just as we we were in the Old Testament, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the apostle also goes into this uh, in... uh, a different way at the end of chapter 4, verses 21 and following. And there, in the, at the end of chapter 4, he talks about Abraham's two sons. He for, talks first about Ishmael, and he says of Ishmael that he was born of the bondwoman, that is, he was born of Hagar, who was the slave of Abraham and Sarah. He was himself, therefore, Uh, one who was not of the same status as a a true son of Abraham and Sarah. In the second place, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. And what the apostle means here is that this child, Ishmael, was not born by the power of the promise of God. God had told Abraham he would give him a son. But that promise was not working in the birth of Ishmael. That promise, that son Ishmael, was not the child of the promise. He was born according to the flesh, that is, according to the sinful decision of Abraham and Sarah, not according to the power of the promise of God. And then he says later on in these verses, that uh, child of the flesh persecuted the Son, born according to the Spirit. As he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. So that's Ishmael. But he also talks about Isaac, and he says of Isaac, he was born of the free woman. That is, he was born of Sarah, 
who was not a slave. She was free. She was Abraham's wife. And he was born by the power of the promise. He was the child of the promise. And God made that very clear to Abraham and Sarah because Sarah was Abraham, uh, was, uh, was barren, and Abraham was, as Romans 4 says, as good as dead. There was no possibility then for Abraham and Sarah bringing forth this child of the promise. God made it very clear to them that it was by his work, by, because of his promise, that this child had been born. Isaac was the seed of the promise. So that's, that's very clear. But now what the apostle does is he makes these two sons symbolic of the two covenants. But there's a very uh, interesting twist that he makes here, he does here. First of all, he shifts his attention from Ishmael to Hagar. And he, he says, Hagar is symbolic of the covenant from Mount Sinai. These are the two covenants, that is, the child born according to the flesh and the child born according to, uh, through the promise. These are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So he says, this was the child born according to the flesh. Abraham worked. Abraham worked to fulfill the promise of God. He was seeking that son whom God had promised to him when he took Hagar and begot Ishmael of her. And he did not produce the child of the promise. The works of the law cannot produce the child of the promise. The works of the law cannot fulfill the promise. They beget bondage. So this Hagar, then, uh, is symbolic of Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. But now notice here that the apostle is very careful, and I think this is important, he's very careful to define what he means by Mount Sinai here. He says, this Hagar is Mount Sinai, in Arabia. And he says also, and it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. I think the whole point here is that the apostle understood very clearly that Mount Sinai and Jerusalem were wrapped up in the promises of God. That At Mount Sinai, God came to dwell among his people. That's where his house was built and first set up. And that Jerusalem was the city of the living God in the Old Testament. They they had uh, significance, therefore, with respect to the promises of God. And so the apostle, to make very sure that we don't confuse what he's talking about with that whole matter of the promise, he says, But I'm talking not about the symbolic significance of Mount Sinai. I'm talking about Mount Sinai in Arabia. And I'm not talking about Jerusalem as the city of God. But I'm talking about Jerusalem, which now is. 
that is, that Jerusalem which rejected its Messiah, would not believe in him and had him crucified. That Jerusalem which God has himself rejected, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11. That Jerusalem is in bondage with her children. She still clings to the works of the law. That Jerusalem has begotten always in its history bondage because that Jerusalem has always sought its righteousness, sought its life, sought the fulfillment of the promises by the works of the law. And whenever it has done that, it has failed in its purpose. It has not brought what it sought. Those earthly places, as understood then by the Jews of Paul's day, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, were not what God intended them to be. And that Jerusalem then is in bondage. They have not escaped from the law. They have not escaped from the schoolmaster. They have not escaped from the elements of the world. They have not grown up to maturity. They are still under the law and therefore still under the curse of the law. They cannot approach God then or dwell with him. And so Paul concludes this discussion by saying about that Jerusalem, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? This is verse 30. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. That's a a reference to God's words to Abraham when uh, uh, Sarah was upset with Hagar and wanted to get rid of her. And God said, comply with Sarah's request, cast out the bondwoman and her son. And Paul takes that and he applies it to the Jews of his own day. And he says, this is what God is saying uh, about the Jews of your day of your time. He is saying, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. But the apostle also talks in this passage about the real Jerusalem, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And what Paul means by that all there is the Gentile as well as the believing Jews. Jerusalem, which is above, is free because that Jerusalem has received the promises by faith. That Jerusalem has become the mother of us all. We are children, this is from verse 31, not of the bondwoman, but of the free. Do not, therefore, the apostle is saying, be subject to the bondage of that law. Do not return to circumcision, to the ceremonies of the law, to all that Old Testament uh, stuff, which was intended to uh, lead or guide the people of God in the Old Testament to Christ. You have Christ now, he says, by faith. You do not need that law anymore. You do not want to return 
to that bondage. Now, let's conclude this then by um, kind of summarizing, if we can. First of all, the Mosaic Covenant fulfilled the Abrahamic Covenant in a shadowy way. God multiplied Abraham's seed as the stars of the heaven. He gave to Abraham's seed the land which he had promised to Abraham. He um, uh, set up his house among them and became their God, and so on. You look at those promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and you see that those promises were fulfilled in Israel, but in a shadowy form, that is, in a way which was not complete, in a way which was not uh, the, the realities, the spiritual realities of the promises. It was not a spiritual land that he gave them, the better country which Abraham and all believers in the Old Testament sought. It was a physical land. It was not a real blood of atonement, but a shadowy blood of atonement. It was not real cleansing with the blood of Christ, but it was washings with water and so on. It fulfilled that promise, though, to Abraham in the shadowy form, and it fulfilled the promise to Abraham in the shadowy form in the Old Testament because it was fulfilling the promise to children, to those who had not yet reached their maturity, who were not yet ready for the full reality of the promises. And they needed all these special provisions of the law all of this law to guide them and instruct them and to bring them to Christ, the final fulfillment, to prepare them for the final and the real inheritance, the spiritual inheritance. They needed training. They needed training and understanding who is God? Well, the Old Testament showed that by uh, showing them that God lived behind the veil of the tabernacle and was unapproachable by them. They couldn't go into that room where God was. It's not until Christ has come that the way into the holiest of all is made manifest. They needed to know what is sin. And the law taught them very clearly what sin is. It made sin exceedingly sinful. They needed to know the effects of sin, that sin kept them from the presence of God, and that the only way of approach to God was by the removal of sin, the bloody sacrifices and the cleansings and so on. They needed to know then also how God would deal with sin. And the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law set this before them in types and shadows. They needed to know what is the proper way to draw near to him. And all these ceremonies of the law showed them here is the way of salvation. They needed to know what God required of them in, his, in their life with him as his people. And the law did that for them. It showed them what was the way of life that he required of them, a way of life that is holy. The law gave them all that training. The law was its tutor, to, their tutor to bring them to Christ. But now that we have reached the age of maturity, those special provisions of the law 
are no longer needed. We have received the reality in the spiritual reality of the promises, the inheritance, the Spirit himself, the true land of promise, and so on. The law is written on our hearts. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise has been made sure to all the seed of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles alike. We are children of Abraham and Sarah and of Jerusalem above, not of Hagar and of Sinai and Mount Arabia and of Jerusalem, which now is. We are free from the curse of the law and from that schoolmaster. We are the children of the promise. So that's the, the, what Paul is saying then about the law and the promise here. The law had a purpose, but it was a purpose that served to emphasize the idea that Israel must seek the reality of God's saving work by faith alone, not by the works of the law. The law confined all under sin. And so Paul in the last part of the uh, letter to the Galatians, takes this basic idea of freedom from the law and he applies it to the Galatians. Galatians 5 verses 1 and 6, and here he's getting into the practical part of the epistle, just as he does in most of his other epistles. He has his theological part at the beginning and then he has the practical part at the end. Chapters 5 and 6 in Galatians are the practical part of his um, letter to them. And he says at the beginning of that chapter, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Do not bring yourselves under that Old Testament law. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. But he also says, he not only says, stand fast in that liberty, but he also says in verses 13 and following, don't use that liberty as an occasion for the flesh. That is, do not think that your freedom from the curse of the law and from this whole idea of works righteousness means that you are not responsible for keeping the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Do not use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh. Serve one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not bite and devour one another. Walk in the Spirit and bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He recognizes, in other words, that though we have been redeemed from the curse of the law by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there still remains sin in us. The lusts of the flesh are still there. And they war against the uh, Spirit who dwells in us. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So stand fast in your liberty, but do not make your liberty an occasion, an opportunity for the flesh. 
but rather serve one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ has made you free from the curse of the law, and Christ has washed you in his blood, so that you may be holy as he is holy, and live live with the Holy One of Israel, the God who has said, I will be your God and the God of your children after you. Next time, then, we'll begin to look at God's covenant with David. May God bless you with his word.